All right. So I want to I wanna just take a moment. Uh, we love Kristen and Justin, right? They're not supposed to be hearing this. They can just go. Uh, so I get, I get messages all the time from Kristen. Hey, I need to know about this verse. We're teaching the kids. And, I, and okay, so we talk about it a little bit. And okay, and then we're going to do this. And she gets so excited. And it's amazing. I wanted to share that with you, not because I, wanna, I want to toot the horn about Kristen and Justin. They're just, they're our friends. And we love them. And the brothers and sisters in Christ. But I was so encouraged. We're not just running a daycare back there. It's not just, hey, watch our kids while, while the grown-ups learn about Jesus. Our kids are being fed the bread of life in the form of Jesus Christ. Your children are being taught Jesus with fervor and zeal. And I want to encourage you to pray for them. I encourage my children to pray for their teachers to take ownership of who they are. That, that's their teacher. That's their pastor's. And so I want to encourage you to do the same thing for Kristen and Justin. We've known over the years, they've, they've been through various trials and uh, come out smelling like Jesus every time. And I, I just want to encourage you to do that um, because they cannot do it alone. They're not just good people who are doing good things. They are people who are clinging to Jesus so that our kids might be fed Jesus. So lift them up in your prayers. Do not forget them. With that being said, turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Let me ask you a question as you turn there. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Think about, for a moment, something you are really good at. I mean like exceptionally good. Like uh, you do it better than almost anyone else you know. Maybe it's a dish you make. Maybe it's just cooking in general. Maybe it's, it's sports. You're really good at a particular sport. Maybe you're good at card games or board games. Maybe you're really good, <clears throat> excuse me, at uh, video games. I know a lot of people kind of dismiss video games. Video games, I think, are an amazing thing as long as they're not wasting your life. Um, maybe you're really good at uh, speaking. Maybe you're really good at uh, just being a friend or a companion or uh, a confidant to something, a good listener. What is your talent? What is it that you do that is you know, you, you're not bragging. We're not looking to puff people up. But I, I just want you to recognize for a moment, what's the thing you do? How did you get there? Was it like maybe uh, like Maybelline and maybe you were born with it? Maybe you just kind of started something one day. You're like, wow, I'm really good at this. You, you, you put your hand to carpentry or, 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 or cooking or some hot scrapbooking, something. And you're like, wow, I'm, I can see how this all comes together. You, you seem to have this natural talent for it. Or maybe you were just intrigued, and, and since we live in the day uh, and age of the internet, you just researched the heck out of it. You're just like, I want to learn everything I want to know about this. So you got filled up with this information. You got all these pins on your pin board on Pinterest, and, and, and you just become very proficient at something. We all have these different talents, these things that sometimes, sometimes they, they rear their ugly head. They become our identity. And that's a bad thing. Nobody should be known for a thing that they do. They should be known for a person that they know, and that's Jesus. That's our, our identity as a child of God. But we're going to talk about that next week. I don't want to get too far ahead. Dollars to donuts, I bet you, you did not just wake up one day perfect at something. Even with a natural-born, God-given talent, you have worked at that thing. And you've worked at that thing for quite some time. If it truly captivates you, it's there 
all of the time, right? It's, it's your hobby, it's your passion, it's your thing. Now, I, I use that today because when it comes to Jesus, the word, his church, and prayer, we totally attack it in a different way. We assume that, well, we don't have to do anything, or, or we grow lackadaisical in our practices and then wonder why our life is lacking. We wonder why we lack zeal or fervor. We wonder why life is so hard and arduous. Why, why what other Christians are going through, the, the victories they're having seemingly are absent from our life. Today we're going to talk about practicing not just a religion, not just uh, you know, uh, some commandments, but practicing Christ. Practicing Jesus. Abiding in him is the way that the Bible puts it. Here's what John says in, in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Let's pray. Lord, your word is good. And again, Lord, we will pray this, every, this prayer every week, Lord, until your return. Lord, it is for your glory. We do not seek to add to your word or to take from your word, but to simply proclaim it, that your Holy Spirit may take it and drive it deep into the hearts of your people, including myself. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So that word abide, that word abide, we don't use that word a lot. It's, it's a very Christian word. If you're talking to somebody you don't know and they use a word like bless or abide, chances are they're a Christian or, or they know you're a Christian, so they're starting to sort of change their vocabulary to, be a, to assimilate into the crowd that they're in. And so abide, sanctification is another word like that, but abide is one of those words that the Bible uses frequently that we don't use that much. And abide is a very important word. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not about incorporating this word into your life more. That's, that's what we would call a legalism. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the Bible speaks at length about abiding and, and dwelling in a specific spot. That, that word abide literally means to dwell or to exist in an area or in a thing somewhere. If you are proficient at a particular thing, if you're really good at a particular talent, chances are it's because you abide in that thing. If you're really good at guitar, if you're really good at singing, then you're always doing that thing or seeking opportunities to do that thing. I know, I know people who sing and they sing all the time. They just, they just always sing. They're constantly honing that craft. People who cook, they don't just cook three meals a year. They cook constantly. They're always looking for new recipes, new variations, new, new herbs and spices, new ways and methods. You know, they're, they're buying new contraptions. They're buying new knives. They're always looking to upgrade. If you're really good at building stuff, you're looking for new tools and new methods to, to, to do different things and techniques. You're abiding in that particular thing. This particular word that John uses it's a very interesting word. And I don't like to get too in-depth at word studies, especially on a Sunday morning, because I don't think lives are, lives are changed by intellectual information. I want this to be kind of like the undergirding or the, the support for the rest of the message. This word that, that John uses is used about 105 times throughout the New Testament. 
In the other 26 books of the New Testament, it's used 51 times. John himself, in the three or four books that he wrote, 54 times. It's a word that he continuously uses throughout his letters. The man who was the beloved disciple, the one who watched Jesus crucified, who took care of Jesus' mom, he understood the, not just the importance, the necessity of abiding. But not just abiding in and of itself, because you can abide in all these things, right? You can abide in church your whole life and never know Jesus. You can abide in a family and never really be connected with them. What we're talking about is abiding in someone specific, and that's Jesus. I think to myself, why, why did this strike John, this word, this concept, this, this principle? Why was it so important to him? Here's what I love about the Bible, and we're learning this in James as well. When you see this type of thing, like the word study, the 54 times that John uses it compared to the other writers of the New Testament, it gives us something of the personality of who John was. The thing that happened that maybe the other disciples, it wasn't a, maybe for them, they didn't latch on to that concept right away, but for John, he saw it. It affected, it changed him. The concept, the idea of abiding in Christ, being in his presence continuously, dwelling with him, for him was more than just a good idea or a foundational doctrine. It was life itself. And it's in the Gospel of John where we are given the, the, the famous uh, I am the vine and you are the branches from Jesus. John chapter 15 verse one says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. That it may, be more, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. All throughout that, abide in me. The branches must abide in the vine. We must be connected continuously to Jesus to live the life that Jesus has died to give us. We cannot have the kingdom without the king. We cannot have salvation without the Savior. We cannot have peace without the Prince of Peace. We cannot have righteousness without the King of Righteousness. To be and to abide in the blessings of Christ, we must have Christ. We must abide in him. 
Abiding in Christ will result in something. In the same way that abiding in your hobby or your profession or, or whatever thing that makes you tick, abiding in that results in you getting better at it, more proficient at it. You ever see um, like people who fold laundry really fast? Like you go to the gap or something and there's like, you're like, whoa, like I, I, try to, I try to fold stuff at home and it comes out all wonky and just, you know, this doesn't look great. It doesn't make it to the dresser. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just doesn't, it doesn't fit in there right if it does. But you go to the Gap or Old Navy and there's like, that's because they folded that same shirt 5,000 times. They've done it repetitively. They've realized the errors of the previous methods and developed a perfect method to fold it up really fast. I don't like that. I don't, wanna, I don't want to live a life where I'm proficient at folding a shirt for 10 bucks an hour. One of my favorite comedians was a man by the name of Mitch Hedberg. He tells a joke of how he got a job as a short order cook and, uh, and they were cooking hot dogs on a flat iron grill and, and, and the, the cook that was training him put the hot dogs over in one corner and he, and he said, well, why'd you do that? And he said, well, because that's where the, the hot dogs cook best. I put them all over there. They cook the most thorough and uh, they cook the fastest right there in that spot of the grill. And he said, that moment I quit because I did not want to live my life knowing strategic grill locations. And I, and I feel the same way. There are some things that are worth being uh, uh, invested in. Well, that's not one of them. If I'm going to invest my life in something, it's gonna be something that has eternal value. It will be the Lord, my wife, my kids, the church, and that's probably it. You wanna take the guitars, you wanna take the things, that's fine. They come and they go, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? But these things are eternal. These things will last longer than me. I want to invest myself. I want to abide in first and foremost Christ. Are these other things bad? Not in and of themselves. But as we've talked about previously, when they take God's place, they become a bad thing. And so first and foremost, the goal, the the command set forth by Jesus is that we would abide in him. And here's what abiding results in. Number one, it results in uh, bearing fruit. If you feel as though your life is fruitless, could it be that the vine somewhere has been severed? The connection between you and Christ somewhere has shifted, changed, whatever word you want to use. It's just not there. Like you go to flip the switch and no light comes on because there's a, there's a bad connection somewhere. Jesus said that those vines that abide or that those branches that abide in the true vine, they bear fruit. If you, if you're, lend your hand to gardening, you have a green thumb, you know that if a plant isn't bearing fruit, there's something wrong, right? Something's lacking in that plant. And it's that same imagery that Jesus uses. If you're not bearing fruit, if you aren't loving people, if you're not serving, if you're not in love with Christ and, 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 and encaps, encapsulated, encaptured, enraptured, if you're not encompassed totally by Jesus, I will find that word by the end of the sermon. If you're not completely in love with Christ. And I don't mean you understand him. I don't mean you, you're cool with everything he says because he says things and we have to get used to it. I, what I'm saying is you understand he's your all in all and without him you have nothing. Then there might be a disconnection somewhere because Christians who are connected to their Christ bear fruit. 
And I don't say that, and I don't think Jesus teaches it to judge us, to, to make us feel less. I think it's a warning. If you're not bearing fruit, look at your life. What's happening? I guarantee you Jesus has not severed that, that vine. He hasn't cut you away. He's pruning you. He wants you to bear fruit. He's cutting off leaves and bad branches, but man, he wants you to grow. He wants you to bear fruit because that glorifies him. So abiding in Christ bears fruit. Abiding in Christ also results in prayers answered. Verse, was it verse 12? Doesn't matter, it's there, look it up. Jesus said, abide in me and ask for anything and you'll get it. And so people take that and say, okay, I can get whatever I want. Jesus is Santa Claus. I ask him for something and he gives it to me. He's a big vending machine. Prayer is my coin. I put it in the slot and I get what I want. I want a car. I want a house. I want a wife. I want a husband. I want a kid. I want health. I want money. Jesus is going to give it to me because he said so. Not what he said. Let's go back. Let's see. I should have, I should have quoted where that scripture was because uh, it's there. If you abide in me, whatever you, okay. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, what must abide in you? God's word. What happens when God's word abides in you? You start saying things like, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. You no longer care about the stuff. You start seeing stuff as, oh, that's, that's good stuff. But if it comes and goes, who cares? I look around the room, you guys have gained and lost fortunes. You've been healthy and strong. You've had kids and lost kids. You've had marriages and lost marriages. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But when God's word abides in you, you start to desire something different than this world can offer. You no longer want just the stuff that the world can provide. You look at that and you say it's good, not great. The greatest thing God can give you is not a fancy boat or a fast car or a big house. If that's your view of an almighty God, get yourself a bigger God. That is nothing. Look at the life of Christ. He tells his disciples, I have no place to lay my head. He has to pay a tax. What does he do? He sends his disciples to fish for a fish that has a gold coin in its belly. You have a God who came to this earth as a homeless rabbi with nothing, never needing anything. That is the life that you've been called to. That is the life that you will live. You will have stuff. You will not have stuff. You will learn what it is like to live without and you will learn what it's like to live with. And the danger of both of those is they captivate your heart and turn you towards the other. Everybody should be poor. See how I'm poor? Everybody should be poor. That, makes, that means you're more holy and more righteous. Well, no, I'm rich, so everybody should be rich. Jesus has blessed me and gave me favor, and I'm looking down upon you, and it's like Jesus is right in the middle saying, I have everything, yet, lack, yet I have nothing. I have the whole world, yet I'm still wanting more individuals to know me. Jesus said, if you abide in him and his words abide in you, you will ask for him and you will receive him. How sad to ask for Jesus and get anything else. Jesus likened it to this. He said, you know, you, you dads, 
you're evil? If you always thought Jesus was saying nice things to people, read that verse. But even you know, if your kids come and ask for bread, you don't give them a rock. If your kids ask for food, you don't give them a snake. And then he says, how much more will the Father give you the Holy Spirit? You see, there's something better than this world. There's something better. And when you're abiding in Christ, you start to see that. Remember, John's coming up against the Gnostics. The Gnostics are telling you, no, abide in mystery. Abide in secret knowledge. Laws of attraction. You know, think about positive things. Attract positivity to yourself. Blasphemy upon blasphemy. Heresy upon heresy. Know these things. And then you might know Jesus. It's all so secret and so exclusive. And no, are you, are you there? And John says, no, you abide in Christ. You abide in him. James 4 and 1, in case you disagree with me about what we just discussed, James 4 and 1 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions And he caps that off by saying, you adulterous people. If you can read James chapter four and walk away with a positive attitude, you have not read it. Go back and read it again because James goes to great lengths to make sure that he rubs you the wrong way to wake you up from the slumber of stuff. He says, what causes, why are you guys fighting? You're fighting because you want stuff and you're blaming each other for it. Well, we don't have this because of them. We don't have revival because those people won't come to church. Oh, we don't, we don't have spiritual zeal because of this or that. Oh, we are not blessed financially because that person over there or that group over there. And James just calls them out and says, no, 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 you want stuff and you don't get it because you want it for the wrong reasons. You want to satisfy your flesh. Well, Lord, if I had, you know, if I had this, then I could, uh, I could really uh, start this ministry and blah, blah, blah. Do it anyways. I don't, I don't, you could do almost anything without nothing, especially in this day and age. You ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, not your, not your hobbies, not your, not your, uh, you know, thing that kind of occupies your free time if you have any. He's talking about your flesh and its desires. It's like, it's like if I were to say, you know what? I think there's a group of guys on Thursday. Oh, I know there's a group of guys on Thursdays. They go for a, a, a bike ride, like around the lake or something every Thursday. And it's like me going to Lord saying, Lord, if I only had a motorcycle, I could, I could truly minister to these men. Oh, Lord, if you just gave me I'm trying to think of a bike that I would want. I can't, I don't know. Harley, whatever. If you gave me a Harley or an Indian, I would use it to your glory. Oh Lord, and I'm full of it, right? Amen. What, what, what's really happening there? I heard her. full of it, right? I'm not fooling anybody in this room. Am I going to be fooling Jesus? No. Jesus knows. Now our motorcycle's bad. 
Some of you would say yes. Some of you would say no. They're not. Are they dangerous? Yeah, they can be. But are they evil in and of themselves? Of course not. Would it be a bad thing if somebody gave you or you bought yourself a motorcycle? No. Is it wrong to dress it up in spiritual piety and make it sound Christian-y? Yeah. That would be me asking God wrongly to feed my passions or my flesh. God, I want to lead worship and I need a guitar. A 1913 Martin vintage acoustic guitar. Wait a minute. You mean a guitar that costs like tens of thousands of dollars? What about, you know, like some thing off Craigslist that stays in tune and, you know, to the glory of God that costs 75 bucks? That's just as good. And it will, you, you will glorify Jesus more with that rickety old thing than some brand new whatevers. I pick on those things because I'm picking on myself, but where are you at in that? Where are you spirit? If I only had a spouse, if I only had kids, if I only had this, you're telling me there's something you lack to be able to truly worship and minister. No, you don't. You have everything you need in this moment to do exactly what God has called you to do. And if you abide in him and he abides in you, you will do that thing. Number three, it glorifies the Father. Doing stuff for Christ, in Christ, glorifies God. Last week, we used the scripture, I forget where it's at, but Paul said basically, I I came to you in weakness and trembling so that you might have your faith and trust rest not in the power of men, but in the power of God. We don't need a powerful speaker or ministry or we just need people who are willing to go out and make disciples of all nations to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to go out as Jesus was with them to change the world. It is a tall order that we get to do in the name of Christ. It is doable, not because we are great, but because he's great. And when you do these things, you glorify Jesus. You don't have to try to glorify Jesus. You just abide in him and it will happen. Jesus said, it's the mark of a disciple. Are you a disciple? A disciplined one, one that's following after Jesus because Jesus said that the mark of a disciple is one who abides in him, one that wants to abide in him, one that seeks to abide in him. You might even say, you know what, Lord, I don't want to abide in you, but I'm seeking it because I know it's right. I know it's where I should be. I know it's the place of favor. I know it's the place of mercy and grace. I want to be there even though my flesh doesn't desire it. I don't feel it. Who cares if you don't feel it? It's where you need to be. And so fight that feeling through prayer. Fight that feeling by choosing what is right over what you are experiencing. Because the mark of a true disciple chooses that rather than I don't feel it. Jesus said, if you abide in me, you will, you will abide in my love and you will fulfill my commandments. There's a, a bad teaching that um, obedience is the same as legalism. That's not the case. Like when we preach the Bible and what the Bible says, oh, well, you're just being legalistic about the Bible. No, the Bible says that Jesus, that the Lord in general seeks obedience over sacrifice. We are expected to hear the word of God and then attempt to do it. We might fail. 
I mean, we might fall flat on our face, but we are called to obey. When the word says to love each other as I have loved you, that is the command that I give you, that is expected of you. And if you seek to fulfill that, to do that thing, you're not being legalistic, you're being obedient. Legalistic would say, if you do not do those things, Jesus will not love you, that you will not be saved. No, salvation rests in the grace of God alone. Your faith in him now connects you to him and he will not let you go. Will he be pleased with you? Will he, will he be angry with you? That depends on your actions afterwards. But he will never leave you nor forsake you simply because you have failed at something. But Jesus said, look, if you're abiding in me, you're going to want to do these things because he will give you the desires of your heart. He will change your heart to desire these things. His command in, in verse 12 and 13, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. See, when I read that verse, I go back to, the, to pray for whatever you want because it'll be given to you. I look at this and go, Lord, how am I supposed to love other people the way you loved people? How, how am I supposed to do it as good as you? How am I supposed to do it at that level? How am I supposed to perform at God-like efficiency? I know, I will pray. I will pray that the Lord gives me this love, this love that, uh, that he has laid down his life for me so I will lay down my life for others because I can't do it by myself. First thing I'm gonna do is judge, right? Should I lay down my life for that person? Well, I don't really like him, so I'm not gonna. That person who just cut me off in the road, am I gonna lay down my life for them? No. <laughs> am I gonna lay down my life for Donald Trump? Am I gonna lay down my life for this politician? Am I gonna lay down my life for this terrorist? You, you'd say no right away, right? But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, love one another with a love that he has. Now, you can try to get crafty and say, well, that means other Christians. And that's true, but read the rest of the Bible. It's not just Christians. Christians are, well, it's about to say easy to love, but we know that's not true. Christians, it's natural to want to, or, or supernatural rather, to start to love them because they're, it's like loving your family. You're gonna start with them, right? You, you might disagree with everything they say, but you're gonna be, hey, you know what? We're family at the end of this all. And I love you with a love that transcends our relationship or our, our blood relation. But as you read the rest of the canon of scripture, you realize you're supposed to love everybody, especially those of the household of faith, uh, Paul tells of the Galatians, but everybody nonetheless. And John says something that we've lost sight of. Where is it at? Oh, I went, didn't go back far enough, sorry. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we have totally lost sight of the fact that Jesus is coming back. It's no longer even a blip on our radar. More people are upset that Tim Allen no longer has a television show than Jesus Christ is returning. And I don't mean that as a joke. I hope that convicts your heart more than anything. Because I'm here to tell you, if you are falling on your sword 
for something as trivial, trivial as a television show. I don't care what the reason was why it was canceled or taken off there. I could care less. You're gonna throw all your eggs into that basket and not the return of Christ? Not the exaltation of the name of Jesus? Church, we as, as Christians, we throw our, our weight behind some of the most foolish, just plain dumb things. Oh, but he stands up for, for conservatism and righteousness. Yeah, and those things apart from Jesus will be damned to hell. We don't stand just for morality. We don't stand just for this value or that value. We stand for Christ. And the Bible says he's returning. And John says, you're gonna shrink back. You're gonna turn your head down in shame like this, like a dog cowering with its tail between its legs when Jesus comes back and you're not abiding in him. It doesn't say you won't be saved. It doesn't say that God will forsake you. What it says is that your response will not be so great. Jesus is returning. It is the hope that Jesus has left us with as he ascended to be with the Father. That he would one day return so that our abiding in him was more than metaphorical, but actual. That he would be our God and we would be his people. John 14 and one, again, we see John. We see John in the presence of Jesus hearing this and later on writing to this church. Look, we have seen Jesus, we've touched him, we've known him. He wasn't just spirit, he was man as well. Man and God mingled together, incarnate, in flesh. He heard these words and they resonated in him and he shares them again decades later. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Here's some really crazy wacko, God's building me a mansion with all this and all that and missing the fact it's not about the building. It's about who you will be with for all of eternity. His house has many rooms because there are many children that he will have and you will be those children as you abide in faith in him. It's a promise that he would return to take us home to be with him. Hebrews 9 and 28 says, so Christ having offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We're told that the why of Jesus' second coming is not just for fun. It's not to pay for sin again. It's to come get us. And that will come in the form of taking us as we are now or from the grave regardless of when we've fallen asleep in our faith, but that the second time that Jesus returns, it will be not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await him. I would say those who are abiding in him. Second Peter 3.10 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
There's a guy in Florida right now, claims to be Jesus. There are people all around this earth right now, they claim to be Jesus. David Koresh, Waco, Texas, claimed to be Jesus. Different men throughout history have claimed to be Jesus. But the Bible goes to great lengths to say, look, when Jesus shows up, you won't question it. You won't be like, was that Jesus? I think I just saw Jesus, I'm not sure. I mean, he's a short 52-year-old Latino man, but he claims to be Jesus. Not Jesus, he claims to be Jesus. I'm Mexican, I get to make that joke. You don't, watch yourselves. Is that him? Peter says, look, heaven, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly body, everything will go crazy. It will be the most organized chaos anybody has ever seen because it will leave no doubt that something is happening and it's Jesus doing it. When Jesus returns, it won't be some tabloid newspaper that exposes it. It won't be some 2020 article that says, hey, we think we found Jesus. It will be evident in creation. It will be evident in crazy manifestations upon the earth. It will be obvious. You will know. So if you have not seen that, Jesus has yet to return. But it says that he will come like a thief. Anybody ever been stolen from? I had my bike stolen when I was like 10. If you want to really hurt a 10-year-old, take their bike. I'm being dead serious. They have fewer things that bring more liberty to a child than a bike. It's, it's transportation. It's, it's one step up or below uh, driving, and you're like, you're just the king, man. You have a bike. You can hang out with your friends and ride with them and do dangerous things with it. I mean, it's just having your bike stolen is the worst. You just wake up one morning, you're like, hey, my bike was on the porch. Now it's not on the porch. <gasps> Somebody stole it. It wasn't even a good bike. Like I just did all kinds of stuff to it. It was, it was just, somebody stole it just to take it. And you know what happened? I didn't know what happened. Because that thief came like a thief in the night. It happened so fast. It happened so quickly. I did not call it to happen. I did not ask for it. I was not expecting it, yet it still happened. The Bible says that Jesus will come like a thief comes. Not to steal, but just so unannounced, so unpredictable. Well, this guy says that Jesus is coming back on this particular day. He's lying. Well, he did math in the Jewish Bible and there's a code. No, lies. Jesus said himself, the son does not know. The father alone knows. Well, I think Jesus is coming back this day. And, I'm not, and this is what they always say. Well, I'm not predicting, but if you do this weird mathematical equation, then Jesus is coming back September 21st, 2000, whatever. Okay, as long as you're not predicting it, I guess we're okay. You can't preface it with that and then take away that there's actual prediction going on there. Well, I'm not predicting that Jesus is coming back, but it's going to happen because generations from the Jewish, the Six-Day War, 1948, and then that's going to happen. No, you will not know. And if you know, then Jesus was lying. That makes it worse. You will not know. Matthew 24 and 36 says, but, the, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Everybody in heaven is like, today the day? We're going, to, no, not today? Okay, not today. All right, maybe tomorrow. We, we don't know. The angels in the presence of God, they don't know. Some guy on earth with a calculator, he knows, but not the angels in heaven that are in the presence of God. They don't know. Today? No, not today. All right. We're going to be ready. 
You give the signal, and we're out. Jesus, you ready? Of course you're ready. You're always ready. That's the epitome of being Jesus. You're always ready. Matthew 24 and 44. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He is returning, but you don't know when. And some of you, that really rubs you the wrong way. I wish I knew when Jesus was coming back. But I learned at a very early age why he didn't tell us when he was coming back. You know why? Same reason why my mom would leave me at home to clean the house and not tell me when, I was, when she was coming back. Because if she said, I'm coming back at six o'clock, guess who's gonna do the flight of the bumblebee at 5.55 to get the house clean or the living room cleaner to do this or that? Because I'm gonna spend the first three hours playing Mortal Kombat or something on my Sega Genesis and then I'm gonna get up and wash the dishes really super quick. Because then if mom comes in, catches me just finishing the dishes, oh, what a good son she has, right? To look at him laboring. He must have been there all afternoon. Me all the while. <laughs> Same thing with Jesus. He tells us, be ready. I'm coming back. I'm not telling you when. Because if I told you when, you'd get ready five minutes before I showed up. And I'm sure he has a multitude of reasons why he hasn't told us. It's just the one I think I figured out. I could be wrong on it. But it's the, it's the one that makes the most sense to me as to why he wouldn't tell us because I would start loving people right before he was showing up. I would start serving people and going to church and praying a lot more right before the date he was supposed to return. It's the same mentality people have when they say, well, I'll give my life to the Lord, you know, later. And they picture maybe a deathbed confession or something. As we spoke of earlier, you may not get that chance as we prayed for the loss of these people that died in this car accident. I say this every week, and I feel it's pertinent every week. What's your response? See, we walk out of here with more information. We're just as stuck. If we're not changed by the revelation of Jesus and his second coming, then what's left to change us? What, what else could God do? I sent my son to die for your sins, to conquer death. He'll be returning. And you're still like, yeah, but I really could use a car. I really, I really could use a spouse. I really could use some more stuff. You know, I just, Lord, my life. So I wish I could use some more peace. I could use some more of this. I could use some more of that. And, and the Bible speaks about how he's already given us everything in Christ. There are lots of things in this world to, to have fun with. I'm not speaking against fun. I'm not speaking against enjoying life. My wife and I, we have, over the last few weeks, we've cultivated this, this porch. It's glorious. The porch of multitude because we don't go there by ourselves. We sit there and we just, we listen to the birds and there's plants and there's lights and we got citronella candles for the mosquitoes and we just sit. That's amazing. That's a good thing. Maybe, maybe you make like really good steak and you make a steak and you sit down and you eat that steak and you're like, oh, that's a, that's a good steak. Or maybe, maybe you're, you're really good at encouraging and you sit down and you just encourage somebody and they walk away lifted up and you're like, man, that was, that was just a good thing. Good things are not bad things, as, as simple as that sounds. We sometimes go around finding things to demonize to make us feel more spiritual. That's not the case. But when those good things become God things, then they become bad things. 
Everything in your life, you must hold with an open hand. That's the epitome of the Lord giving and the Lord taking away. The Lord gives to you. He will take away from you. Blessed be the name of the Lord anyways. You do not cultivate that mentality apart from Christ and not abiding in him. If you want to experience Christ in a way that you've read about in the word, then you must abide in him. You abide in him through prayer. You abide in him through his word. You abide in him through his church. That's it. There's, there's, there's no magical formula. There's no secret knowledge. There's no law of attraction. And if I just think positive thoughts, then positive things will happen. If I just want this thing, I just got to think about it and I'll get it. No. You abide in Christ. You're connected to him. He is the vine. You are the branches. And life will begin to happen. Not just, not just life. Eternal life. So what is your response? I'll give you an idea of what your response could be. It's the opposite of 1 John 2.28. So when he appears, we may have confidence. Or not opposite, it's just the first part. We may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. I didn't even talk about that. Practicing. That word practice. That's a big word. I'll talk about it next week. But what, no, how you respond to Jesus speaks volumes. How you respond shows what you truly believe. You can talk game all day long, but when your life exemplifies something differently, the truth is exposed. Well, I believe that, you know, Jesus is my hope, but you run around scared all the time. Hey, scary things happen. I get it. But at some point, there should be a confidence in the Lord and what he's doing. It shows what we truly desire. Our actions will always show what we want most. Remember the motorcycle thing? Exposed. Shows where your heart truly is, where your treasures really are. Shows how our mind works. It shows whether we're sanctified or not. As James said in chapter 4, if you're using prayer as a stick and Jesus is the pinata, and if you just whack him enough, then he'll open up and give you what you want. It shows you where your heart is. It doesn't show you how saved or how spiritual you are. It shows how, honestly, how demonic your heart has become because you're now manipulating spirits rather than abiding in Christ. And it shows who you truly worship. Some of us just worship ourselves. So how do we respond? Are you living like Christ is returning? Are, is your greatest hope that Jesus will return one day? For some of us, it's not. I can tell you honestly, from day to day, there are days where it just totally slips my mind. And I read a verse and I go, oh yeah, Jesus is coming back. I forgot about that. Like, that's a pretty foundational, big statement of the Bible and I've just let it totally slip my mind. Does the return of Christ spark hope in you or fear in you? If it's sparking fear, then maybe you're not abiding. That's the way John put it. Because if you're not abiding, you're shrinking back. Does it bring hope? If you're like, if Jesus comes back today, everything would be great. Uh, no, yeah, and yes, I have no 
obligation so pressing that Jesus cannot return today. Like if Jesus showed up at the church and was like, hey, Tony, I'm coming back today. And there's all kinds of stuff happening all in the atmosphere and stuff. And like, like Peter said, I'd be like, oh, Jesus. I was taking a road trip later this week and I'm thinking about stopping at Chick-fil-A. You heard of Chick-fil-A, right, Jesus? It's, it's like the, the Christian fast food chain, right? You, you, you've heard of it. Well, I'd really like to go. And you know, it's just gonna be fun. And, and you spend time with my family. And you said, if I, if I don't take care of my family, I'm worse than, than an infidel right? No. Jesus, you're back. Yes. Let's go. Let's, what are you doing? Let's, let's just go home now. Let's just be done. We're done. We're done. Because that's where our hope should lie, that Jesus would return, that Jesus would not just return and, and, and get us, but return. And that would be a joyous celebration that the Bible speaks of. The marriage supper of the lamb. Have you ever read about that? Oh, it's like a buffet with Jesus. Okay, okay apparently I like buffets and Jesus more. I, I, nobody else seemed pretty intrigued by that, but it's like you're sitting down to a meal with Jesus. I would sit down. I'm trying to think of somebody. I would sit down. I've just seen how many people I can offend at one time. I would sit down with Fidel Castro. And if you were going to promise me a good meal, sure, I'll tell him about Jesus. I know he's dead, but you don't understand what I'm saying. Yeah, I'll sit down with him. Yeah, I'll sit. Is there going to be food there? What are you making? Uh, Cubano sandwiches, of course. Cuban. All right, I'm in. And then talk to him about Jesus. And then say, you know, good luck with that communism thing. I'm leaving. We're talking about Jesus, the son of God, the lamb sacrifice, the one who was sent by God the Father to die on our behalf, sitting down, marriage supper. That's our hope. And today you can be there. Your seat at the table has been reserved, not because you're great company, not because I'm super duper, but because Jesus died on your behalf and he has promised to come back to take you that one day you might be with him and he might be your God. That's our hope. Our hope is that in him, all of these things are made right. In the meantime, suck fest. Could be. But then, oh, I guarantee you, it won't be all bad until then. I have, we have a family friend right now. We shared this on Wednesdays. She's in Iraq right now. And she is in a field hospital helping and serving those who have been attacked by ISIS. Church, we're, we go through nothing like that. Can you imagine sitting down with somebody who's been attacked by ISIS and being like, yeah, I know what you mean. They canceled Tim Allen's show. It's like we're, it's like we're going through the same thing. You got half your face blown off. I can't watch my program. I mean, you know what that's like. We go through, we are so privileged, so spoiled. Don't let that blessing turn into spoiling. Let that blessing motivate you, fuel you to serve others. Let it, let it concrete your faith in Christ today. Let's stand. I pray for you. If we need to talk after church, I'm always available. Um, we can talk, we can question, we can meet later in the week. 
I have a pretty open door policy because nobody's abused that open door. Love that. Being honest, some people abuse open door policies. And then pastors shut their door and people wonder why, why does that pastor talk to us anymore? Because somebody abused that privilege. But you guys don't do that and I'm thankful for that. So the door remains open. You guys respect the time I spend with my children and my wife. You guys understand that the church is a priority and so you meet when you can and I meet with you when you can and love talking to you about Jesus. So if you need to talk after this, just let me know. We'll, we'll set something up. But in the meantime, let me pray for you. Father, we, we just praise you. There's so much, Lord, that we, we fail at. There's so much that we lack. But as we shift our eyes from you, and as the hymn says, we turn our eyes upon you, everything changes. Father, keep us in your presence. Renew a right spirit within us. Create in us a clean heart. As we repent today, Lord, may we find the open arms of a loving father welcoming in someone whose life has been more prodigal than it should be. Lord, I thank you that you're a God with open arms. Lord, we've, we have lost sight as a church, Lord, all of us, me, me being probably chief amongst everybody, have lost sight of the second coming of Christ. This great promise that you've given us. This great promise that send, sent men like Peter to an upside down cross in hope. And so Father, we pray, renew in us that zeal and fervor, not for the sake of zeal and fervency, but because you are returning. May we be on fire for you, Lord, in a way that goes out, that we bear fruit, prayers are answered, we're seeking you because we're abiding in you. If we failed at that, Lord, forgive us. Today we, set, we, we seek to make things set right, but we can't do it without you. But I'm thankful for that because if you do it, you get the glory. It will succeed and you will be glorified. If we do it, it'll fail and we'll be blamed. But in you, Lord, we can succeed. So Father, help us to abide in you. Awaken the hunger inside us for you. The one that we've muted and satisfied with everything else. But today, may be satisfied by nothing less than you. Jesus, you're the best. And we love you. And we echo the words of Revelation. Lord, come quickly, even so. Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, I love you. We love you. Thank you for being here today. Linger, say hi to one another again. I know it was a little brief earlier. Don't forget your kids. It's happened before, not at this church, but it's happened. Don't forget your kids. Um, <laughs> and uh, have a wonderful rest of your week. We'll see you on Wednesday, either here or at the Kessler's. God bless you. We'll see you.